Welcome back, everybody, to another fun educational episode with Emergency Trauma Mama. And I've been on a little bit of a hiatus, but I'm back. So thank you so much for all of you that have chosen to tune in. And just to get started, I have to read this little disclaimer because this is the way of the world. So this is in no way, shape, or form meant to be a substitute for medical advice. And I'm not providing any medical or nursing advice. And I'm not responsible nor am I liable for any advice, course of treatment, or any nursing diagnosis that you obtain through this site. And please, as always, if you think you have a medical emergency, call 911. And do not use this site for any medical emergencies. So, that being said, uh, we are going to talk about... Um, a simulation today that I just recently wrote and will probably be doing in the next few months. So all of you that um, have attended ENPC or TNCC, this one is for you. So those of you that like pediatrics, great. If not, sorry, not sorry, because they are who they are. They are not little adults, as you know, and we all take care of pediatric patients at some time in our emergency nursing career. So you either love them or hate them. Um, I love kids, and I like taking care of kids. So we are going to do an 18-month-old male patient that's coming into you today, and he weighs approximately 12 kilos, so 26.4 pounds. And he has a past medical history that's positive for mumps, chickenpox, and otitis media. Social history unknown. Um, this is a level two trauma activation and surgeries and procedures, NA, not applicable. Some of the things that we'll, we'll be just kind of talking about um, include the following. So the importance of the march. Algorithm. So those of you that have heard it have probably seen it perhaps on Insta, IG. If you follow a lot of the trauma posts, there's uh, military trauma folks and there's civilian trauma folks that have some really amazing educational sites. And so the March algorithm is basically going through your what you learn in TNCC and EMPC and ATLS because they're all kind of the same um, in terms of how they teach the A through I mnemonic. Uh, however, the march is a little different because, of course, we're looking at massive hemorrhage first. So all bleeding stops. That's the number one rule, right? If your patient's bleeding to death, you're not going to have a patient for very much longer if you don't stop the bleed. So again, consider tourniquets. If the patient has a tourniquet on, look at the tourniquet. <laughs> Make sure that it's put on appropriately because unfortunately sometimes people get different trainings other than stop the bleed and they don't know how to put a tourniquet on correctly. So, or perhaps if it is a bystander tourniquet, so someone just took their belt off or bandana, what have you, um, perhaps they didn't have an actual cat tourniquet. So, Reassess your tourniquet if one is on and make sure that it's on correctly because, you know, you can put two on if you need to. Um, however, all bleeding stops, right? So with the March algorithm, the first thing is M for massive hemorrhage. So as you're looking at your patient, they're coming into the trauma recess bay. Um, however you do it, I like to actually go out to the rig 
and lay my eyes on the patient as they open the door. So that's, that's me. That's what I like to do. That's when my assessment starts. So the first time I lay eyes on the patient and you see them and they're rolling in or wherever and you just see, you know, a pumper or just steady blood like rolling off the gurney, then that's time to jump into action. And that mess of hemorrhage has to stop. So again, tourniquet, reassess the tourniquet if it's there and make sure it's a cat tourniquet and, you know, whoever put it on, there's always that opportunity for education a little bit later. But um, again, it could just be a bystander tourniquet and the medics had to scoop and run and it was a dangerous scene. You don't know. And it just, the, the tourniquet never got put on. So you don't know a lot of the times, but double check. So massive hemorrhage is M. A is our old friend airway, airway C-spine. Um, those still go hand in hand. So again, if your patient rolls into the trauma bay and they're screaming, check airway patent. Uh, respiratory rate. Does he have a respiratory rate? Is it too fast? Is it too slow? Is it non-existent? Um, that's what we're looking at there. Is it effective or not effective? And C for circulation. What's the cap refill? Are they hopefully not bleeding to death? Um, do they have a line? If not, better get two. Um, and then, of course, hyperthermia is H. So that's the March algorithm. Massive hemorrhage, airway, respiratory, circulation, and hypothermia. So again, if your patient's cold, we want to prevent that, right? Because we want to prevent the trauma triad of death, which is hack. So I teach it as hack. So H is for hypothermia. A is for acidosis, and C is for coagulopathy, right? So if your patient's cold, they try to warm themselves, right, by shivering, but if they're already in shock, what's going to happen? Say they don't have enough circulating blood cells in their body, so they're already in a shock state, they can't shiver, what are they going to do? So your body, obviously, through compensatory mechanisms, tries to change the pH. So then you get acidotic, right? So 7.35, 7.45, you're talking like 7.1 down into the 6 is not 6.9, some of those full rests come in. So severely acidotic, right? No bueno, right? For a patient because when you get severely acidotic and then you can start to go down that coagulopathy which can lead you into disseminated intravascular coagulation or just bleeding out. Right? So the trauma triad of death is hypothermia, acidosis, and coagulopathy, which we want to try to prevent. So that's where you're starting your line and you're you're drawing your trauma labs, but you're also warming the patient, right? So you're getting them hooked up. If you're giving blood, which you should be if they're massive, uh, have massive hemorrhage, um, a lot of you already have the ONEG um, in your helos, in your trauma bays. Um, your MTP, you can always pull the trigger on that if you need to. So a lot of your trauma centers, you're already giving the blood, but make sure you're using your level ones and your Belmonts. So those are those are usually readily available in the trauma bay, but just put it on your radar to go ahead and just start using it immediately. So that's your March algorithm. And then we're going to be talking a little bit about two different types of head trauma. And again, how important it is based on the ENA and STN or Society of Trauma Nurses, how important is it that you have the family present during the resuscitation? 
and it is very beneficial and a lot of EBP has shown this and if you haven't read about it you should um in back in the old days I know I'm aging myself here we used to not invite the family in <laughs> until the very end and that's very sad that we used to do that we didn't know any better it's kind of like when we gave our trauma patients eight liters of saline we didn't know any better and then they blew up the next day like the Michelin man in the ICU and we wondered why so now we give blood because that's what the patient needs is volume for hypovolemic shock so yes bring the family in and sooner rather than later of course they need to have a appointed person whether that's your chaplain charge nurse resource nurse a nurse that knows how to just kind of read the family for what they need and they should be in their trauma recess room. There's no reason that they can't be. There's there's places they can sit as long as somebody's explaining things to them. It's much better for the family. Particularly if you know off the top, um, right when the patient gets there, that the morbidity mortality rate is high. So um, moving on. So we're going to go through our SBAR report. It's approximately 1935. When you receive this um, patient, it's an 18-month-old whose grandfather was throwing him up in the air. You know, wee! Um, unfortunately, grandpa, you know, he took too much of his blood pressure medication and he fell. And he lost his balance and he did not catch the kid. So the 18-month-old fell on the ground. Um, so initially, the kid was unconscious, but he's awake and alert upon arrival. He has a noted um, echinosis and an abrasion above his right eyebrow, and it's oozing a small amount of blood. His right uh, upper extremity and right lower extremity, um, right up, right arm's okay, but right lower extremity has a mild noted deformity. The medic scooped and ran. He's C-collar backboard and crying out for his mom. Again, background includes the fact that initially he was unconscious, but now he's fussy and crying. And so as he's rolling in, you don't see, you start your march algorithm, you don't see any uncontrolled external hemorrhage, which is good. And you want to make sure that you give your medics 60 seconds of silence, or as long as it takes for them to give report, because nothing's more annoying when the medics are trying to give report and people are talking over them or asking questions, um, particularly, you know, in big teaching hospitals, they kind of have this down pat. You know, because there's like 15 or 20 people in the trauma trauma team. So nobody can be talking except for the paramedics who are giving report. Once they're done giving report, the handoff is complete. Then it's time to say, okay, ready, on my count, one, two, three, and move them over. But make sure that you do, and if you are not currently doing this, you need to do it. Because research has shown that the patient has a better outcome when everyone is listening to what the paramedics have to say because they were on scene and you were not and so they understand the mechanism of injury and they can tell you a lot more than you just doing rapid fire questioning so please give them their time and listen so this is your time to listen to them and then of course if you have any questions at the end then you can feel free to ask so make sure you're getting that really good handoff because it's a, it's just important just like nursing, bedside handoff is very important. So with their missed report, they'll, they should be giving you your mechanism of injury, which this kid fell, 
But for me, I want to know what did he fall on? So if it's April and there was a lot of rain and he fell on a grassy area and it was really soft ground is different than he fell down and smacked his head on concrete. So those are two different thought processes. So make sure when you're asking about falls that you find out what did they specifically fall on. Even carpet is a little bit different than concrete. So that's your mechanism of injury. And I told you about the symptoms that you see. Um, There is that mild deformity to the right lower extremity. CMS is intact and they did put a splint on that. So patients here, you've got your Brazil tape on the bed and you've already got your drawer open to the appropriate color because that's how you roll. (laughs) Yeah, Brazil tape is always on the bed in our Peds Trauma Center. And of course, everyone's in their place. So you've got your primary, secondary, you've got your residents, you've got your Peds fellows, everybody's there. And so call out, read back, call out, read back. Make sure your scribe knows everything that's going on and your MD and your trauma surgeons are gonna start their primary and secondary assessment. So about 10 minutes into this, you've got your first set of vitals now. He's uh, 142, heart rate, BP is 98 over 52, respirators are 36, and standing 95% on room air. So everybody's kind of jumping into their roles. Everyone's doing what they need to do. Um, However, you just kind of notice that when you stick the kid, that the cry wasn't exactly what you expected. So almost more of a weak cry. And so the kid's on the monitor, all of that takes place, and you're wondering about your AVPU and your disability. So airway, C-spine, breathing, circulation, disability, all of that's being done, but who's checking his pupils? So you make sure to be the good trauma nurse and check those pupils. And as you do, you notice that um, one pupil is a little bit bigger than the other. And now, let's say the right is six and the left is four. And now you notice it's been about 10 or 12 minutes into this. And the kid's really kind of almost falling silent. So he was super screaming, super upset, like you would expect um, an 18-month-old to be. And then now he's kind of less fussy. And now he's almost like somnolent, like quiet. And no one's really noticing because, of course, they're doing their, their trauma stuff. And no one's really noticing. So you're like, hey, you know what? Let's get another pressure. So your your second blood pressure is 144 over 100, which makes you think that cannot be right. Um, Respirators are 21, so you've had a change in respiratory rate. Heart rate's now 89, so you're heading towards, what, bradycardia, right, hypertension. Um, And his stats are falling. So he's like, initially he was, what, 98, 95. Now he's like 94, and he's falling. And his cap refills delayed, and... Like I said, he's got a right pupil of six, left pupil of four, and his GCS is now seven. So at this point, you're kind of like, hmm, hey, is anybody, you know, let's, let's, let's think about tubing this kid, right? Because his GCS is less than eight. It's time to intubate. And so in your thought process, what are some things that you think could be going on? Well, remember, when I gave you report initially, he was... He had that period where he was unconscious. So when we talk about head trauma, remember there's a couple different types of bleeds and one in particular, they present exactly like this, right? They have that period of lucidity, they're fine. Um, then they're not fine. They say, hey, you know what? 
You know, the kid fell, hit his head, skateboard, no helmet. Oh, he kind of got knocked out, but he's fine. I'm going to go take a nap. And then he goes lay, lay down, take a nap. He doesn't wake up. So this is that same presentation. So this kid was initially unconscious, out completely. And if you missed that in the report, don't feel bad. But again, that's one reason why we need to be listening when the paramedics are talking. So if you weren't listening, you wouldn't have heard that part, which is critically important, right? Because we have a couple different kinds of bleeds. There's epidural bleeds, subdural bleed. Um, when we talk about bleeds, they all have different presentations. So right now we need to tube this kid, right? So you start bagging him and put the OP airway in, prepare for RSI. Um, of course, you're going to want to do probably um, rock. Sounds good. Um, one big per gig. And of course, you could do um, pre-med with atropine, right? Because we're anticipating increased ICP because we've had actual change in pupils since the kid's been here. If we don't have two lines, we have need to get that second line in um, as well while we're giving these drugs. So automate 0.3 mgs per kg, rock 1 mg per kg, um, and go ahead and start thinking about some mannitol, right? Because Or HTS, hypertonic saline, which would be 2 mils per kg, um, 2 mils per kg, excuse me, um, if you have a central line, great, and because um, it's ideal through that. So again, when we talk about Cushing's triad, this kid kind of had all those things happen really fast. So, you know, the heart rate went down, blood pressure went up, and, of course, some the components of Cushing triad are as such. So we're anticipating that this kid's got an epidural bleed, right? So based on mechanism of injury, there's a middle meningeal artery tear. So usually temporal parietal area. If you look at your anatomy and go ahead and look at that skull and... The suture lines, and so when there's a fracture in that particular area, it can lacerate the middle meningeal artery, and so that's where we get this period where they they get unco- they're unconscious, right? Because that's initial injury, and then they wake up, and then they're like, "No, I'm good." Um, meanwhile, they have blood that's actually going into their cavity their skull right there i mean not their skull but excuse me they have a brain bleed they have an arterial brain bleed so again subdural is venous and epidural is arterial so i always think of ea sports i used to be like into like video games so ea sports so epidural is arterial and subdural is venous right subdural is slower S, S, subdural is slower, and so their subdural bleeds present completely different, right? Like, they're fine, but they have that really slow deterioration. This kid, because it's arterial, right? It's fast. So, super, super fast uh, decompensation. So, again, we happen to have all of our neurosurgery on-call, our OR staff's ready to go. Um, they have to evacuate um, and, and repair this, this kid's brain bleed, right? So we want to go ahead and notify surgery that, hey, we've got this kid, we think he had an epidural, um, this is what's going on, right? So, but first we want to make sure that we go ahead and get him intubated, sedated, and ventilated, right? So go ahead and get the kid intubated and go ahead and check, place it, make sure you got your ET, um, entitled CO2 monitor, 
check tube placement, listen over the epigastrum, listen to lung sounds, make sure um, you've got condensation in the tube. You've got multiple ways to check this. Um, yellow is yes, gold is good if you have um, just the color um, cap no, but most places just have the end tidal CO2 as well. And just double check that you're in the right place because it would be very tragic um, to intubate because sometimes residents intubate and um, they don't always get it the first time. So make sure you check placement, um, call neurosurgery, double check and say, hey, you know, we got this kid, he's got an epidural. This is what's going on. And so in the meantime, um, again, back to your mannitol. So again, that's a diuretic, right? So you got to make sure that the kid, go ahead and uh, put a Foley in real quick. So for this kid, it's 0.5 to 1 gram per kilo, IV or IO. Or you could consider the HTS, the hypertonic saline, um, whatever you have in your facility. So again, that's going to help um, decrease the ICP. And we just mentioned the pre-med with the atropine for the same reason. Because when you're doing the RSI, of course, that can increase the ICP. So you want to decrease um, in pre-med with the atropine. So um, making sure that you're keeping this kid warm. And um, so now you've got the kid intubated and he's on the vent. And you want to put a Foley temp probe in if you can. If you have it in your facility, make sure you're keeping an eye on this kid's temperature, right? Because if we go back to our March algorithm, so massive hemorrhage, no. Airway, he's tubed. Respiratory, tubed, he's on the vent. And circulation, now um, we don't have any fluids going or anything like that, but we've got two um, sites for access. One's IV, one's IO. And again, weight is kilos, uh, 12 kilos. So I would make sure to hand that off as well. And H is for hypothermia. So making sure um, that you do have a fully temp probe in this kid. And we'll say that the temperature is like 37.5 at this time. So making sure that you don't go in that trauma triad of death, which would be hypothermia, acidosis, and coagulopathy. So you go ahead and roll this kid up to the OR. And you go ahead and make sure that you hand off with everything that's been done. So any uh, INO that's pertinent, if you did massive transfusion protocol in your um, previous trauma patients, make sure that you're totaling up the INO. I think that's forgotten quite a bit, which is crucial, crucial, crucial on all of your trauma patients. In this case, the kid got very little to no fluid because he was in the field. And then when he arrived in the trauma room, the fluids were turned off. So... Um, again, revisiting just the March algorithm and the trauma triad of death and the importance of temperature. So, you know, if it's winter and this kid were outside for a period of time for a prolonged extrication and an MVC, you know, those are all things that you need to think about for all of your patients. So, um, and again, just re revisiting again to that you should be bringing the family in. It doesn't matter who, what, when, where, earlier rather than later, because you just can't have the patient's or the, the patient's family sitting out in the waiting room wondering what the heck's going on with no one coming out to talk to them. And your trauma team should be comfortable with having family in the corner. They're not going to disrupt you. They're not going to do anything, um, especially if they have somebody with them. So usually, you know, level... 
one, two, three trauma centers, chaplains are part of that activation. So having the chaplain involved and getting them involved, well, that's that's one of the best things that you can do. And getting them in the trauma bay as soon as possible. Because if it were you or your loved one or your child, you would not want to sit in the little consultation room and wonder what's going on. You would much rather be in the trauma room seeing what's going on. So making sure that you do have a designated person kind of to explain to what's going on may not be the chaplain. It may just be your charge nurse or your house supervisor. So keeping those things in mind and then hardwiring your primary, secondary, and your scribe roles and closed loop communication is also key. So a couple key points from that simulation Um, And again, how does the epidural bleed vary from the subdural bleed? Remember, epidural is arterial, um, lacerates the middle meningeal artery, and subdural is venous, and it's slow. So just a couple of key points there. And again, I thank you so much for your time and your attention, and thank you for tuning in. And everybody, have a great evening, morning, or night. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.